Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking the capital markets and energy transition. In order to meet the expectations of energy transition, trillions of dollars are needed. There's huge demand from investors at the retail level and the institutional level to put capital to work to support this transition. How are the markets evolving to meet that need? What's the role of investment banks and advisory firms? And indeed, where are the dollars flowing to? And what does that mean for valuations for organizations involved in the supply chain for energy transition itself? How long would this last? And what are the potential challenges to understanding which organizations are going to succeed and which aren't? Our guests are Arash Nazad. Arash is the MD of Clean Energy Transition at City and his colleague, Blake Best. Blake leads the clean energy transition effort for the private capital markets, also at Citigroup. As always, if you enjoyed the episode, please support us by liking our LinkedIn posts and also providing us a five-star review on the platform you're listening on. I hope you enjoy the episode. Arash, Blake, thanks for joining. It's our pleasure. Um, Really excited to be here, Paul, and appreciate your time. Thanks for having us, Paul. Excellent. So ultimately, we're talking about in order to achieve energy transition over the next decade, two decades, however long it ultimately takes, that's going to take trillions of dollars to retool the entire energy economy that we have. And we're ultimately talking about to connect to that cap, how, how currently we are and how we will in the future connecting capital, the sources of that capital and the drivers of that capital to the organizations that will be delivering that transition. Maybe you can give us a, a I guess, a, a background you know, overview of what's driving this, you know, the, the scale and momentum that's on right now in the markets, but also where we were 10 years ago and the types of capital that were at that time, arguably ahead of the curve in investing in clean energy transition, whether that's technology or whatever organizations that might be. Can you, Arash, maybe you can kick us off and then and Blake talk us a little bit about the history? Yeah, sure. It's really interesting because if you think back to what I call clean tech 1.0, I began my career in a company called Equinor. At the time, I, I actually started my career in the new energy team. You know, in many ways, Equinor was ahead of the curve. They had invested in a CCS project called Monkstad. We're looking at sort of different renewable assets, mostly offshore wind. And what was really interesting when I started my career was it really went against the grain for what at the time would be an oil and gas company to be focused on renewable assets. If you fast forward to 2020, 22. And I look back at sort of where the world was. And when I started my career in 2008, I believe what's really interesting is that the energy transition or what's commonly referred to as the energy transition is, is a global phenomenon. And from my perspective, it's, it's a multi-pronged global phenomenon. It's all encompassing. It's sort of like what digitization did to industries. Everyone, whether you're an agricultural company, an oil and gas company, an energy company, a technology company, an industrial company, the energy transition, the focus on climate and sustainability is incredibly important to what I would call your license to operate. 
And it's going to be increasingly important. So from my perspective, Paul, like over the last couple of decades, you know, as it was, you know, two decades ago was something people participated in. Today, it's something that you have to participate in and you have to think about. And you're seeing that with a pace of acceleration that I have never seen. And the reason that pace of acceleration is driving is actually gaining momentum is because of a couple elements, right? One is regulatory environment is putting a lot of pressure. Two is consumers and state community stakeholders are putting a lot of pressure. So the pressure is being felt by companies. Their boards are then asking their management teams to sort of make that shift. And this is for what I would call the incumbents. And at the same time, there is a lot of focus in terms of entrepreneurs coming up with great ideas, technologies, business models to help push people, to help bring um, to the forefront, to help commercialize, bring solutions that can help address this in, in sort of what I would call game-changing or breakthrough manners. So Blake, can you give us some sense of scale? Because so 20 years ago, you had, okay, you had VC funds out there investing in technology and you had some incumbents ahead of the curve essentially self-mandating and investing in these changes, which has, as Arash pointed to, paved the ground way for the, for the, the costs coming down. But can you give us a sense of scale about back 20 years ago, how much money was flowing into this compared to today, the tidal wave of capital available to the energy transition? Yeah, absolutely. So I think you hit the nail on the head, right? So we've had tons of venture capital over the last 20 years, probably you know fairly well documented there. And we've seen some phenomenal com- companies emerge out of venture capital into the public markets and get capitalized in the public markets. I think you could even look at Teslas and Rivians and things that investors can touch and feel and consumers can touch and feel. But when you look at all the the exceptional amount of public market capitalization in those companies and you, you know, use electric vehicles as only a single example that can exemplify this, you, know, you still only have around 2% electric vehicle penetration in the US today, even with all that market capitalization. But you effectively, you can't build new industries without a market, right? And I think what the capitalization of some of those companies that you can see and touch and feel today is done is shown that there is a market. And I think what that's done is that it's opened up the floodgates of opportunity available to not only the venture community, but now to the later stage community of you've seen a real opportunity for the commercialization of upstream technologies and other enablers that are going to push forward and reduce that green premium on some of these great technologies that are out there and make them available for much wider adoption and commercialization. So to answer your question, just putting some numbers around it, I mean, in 2021 alone, you saw north of $40 billion in dedicated ESG dollars invested through dedicated ESG products. And I think that number is impressive, but I also don't think that takes into account the tremendous amount of ESG dedicated entities within the broader investment houses, the household names that you see in your 401k options, and what you see across sovereign wealth, Canadian pension, etc. You saw 300 SPAC mergers happen last year. And I think probably 30 IPOs over the last few months alone. So, you know, and then you take all of that and you start putting opportunities that don't require perhaps the 
exceptional technical expertise that some of the well-known venture capital firms have done in order to understand technologies, but you're seeing it pervade other sectors that traditional investors in the later stage areas do understand and know and feel and can understand the metrics, whether that's software or manufacturing, um, et cetera. So a couple of things I'd add to what Blake said was one, like this past year, I think EV penetration has hit like in China as well is documented to be almost 20%. In Europe, EV penetration is like 10%. It's getting there in the US. So the demand is actually outpacing expectations, similar to what we saw in like the lithium ion batteries and solar. I think this is all this is going to grow exponentially. And the thing I'd add to what Blake said about around the 40 billion of capital. I mean, if you look at 2021 across the, the SPAC, the private capital, it's close to a hundred billion dollars, right? So it was a tremendous deployment of capital across the space. And, you know, I think. Blake hit the nail on the head, right? It's it's not just about the dedicated vehicles, but vehicles that are broader in mandate are actually quite focused. The energy transition and are evaluating opportunities specifically for that. Yeah. I want to dig into the investors and how they're categorized and some of the drivers there. But just before we get there, is there an agreed definition that encapsulates clean, you know, the energy clean energy transition? Because I asked this very specifically because at the edges of the supply chain for electric vehicles are environmentally challenging lithium projects, mining projects, you know, to dig these materials out that require, that we're going to need to meet the needs of energy transition. Where are the boundaries? Where, how do investors, people package that up? How is that encapsulated? Some of the, the supply chains, some of the materials do involve environmental degradation. Yeah, no, that's a good question. So look, the way I see it is as the industry matures, there's going to be more need for transparency and accountability throughout the supply chain. And you could see a lot of companies actually focus, especially in the venture and growth areas, Paul, in and around this specific issue. So local, one of the big elements, right? When you think about total carbon intensity of a product is the supply chain. So just random example, you know, if you're thinking about a solar panel, right? Like where is, where is the solar panel being manufactured? Where are the inputs coming from? If you think about an electric vehicle, right? One of the biggest cost components of an electric vehicle is the battery. And to your point, the battery has a number of different minerals that are mined in all parts of the world. Then they're shipped to China to be processed. Then they're shipped to, to the cell manufacturer to be, you know, cobbled together and then they're built into a stack so assembled and then they're you finally have your battery pack so if you look at the united states as a center of innovation which i do and if you think about some of the companies coming out of the u.s and and a lot of these venture and growth companies coming out of the u.s like whether it's lilac redwood standard lithium whatever group 14 these are companies that are essentially figuring out ways to get more efficiencies in the ultimate product that's being created, you know, in, in this case, batteries. And what that does is reduce, either reduces the strain on the supply chain and requiring elements that, let's say, to your point, would require mining and, and environmental impact in that mining operation, 
or localizing it. So you just take out the supply chain. So think about like battery recyclers as an example, right? So you take what already exists today as a waste product, you process it within the borders of this country. So, you know, one, you, you reduce your supply chain effort, but also you increase your surety of supply. And so look, from my perspective, Paul, like that's a big part of the innovation that's ongoing. And then it, moreover, it has a externality, which is reducing the environmental impact to your point in and around mining some minerals that would have, you know, detrimental effect in one region or another. But I think that that's the way I see it, Paul, is there's a lot of innovation happening to address that specific subject. Yeah, yeah. And I think they're also those two things, right? In environmental degradation and climate change have often been conflated. And I think that as the one, climate change becomes a, a stark existential risk there are going to have to be concessions made around environmental degradation and smart policies to minimize that in order to meet energy transition. But okay, Blake, so you've got this groundswell of investors from individuals all the way through to funds, organizations, etc. cetera, the sources of capital that are getting into, and some of the conceit of this is that this could be like, as you said, Arash earlier, digitization, right? Getting in on the ground floor of what was a tremendous opportunity for investors. Can you give us some sense of the different categories of investors and dig in a little bit to the drives? Is this purely the next source of returns or are there a more balanced scorecard around expectations for this money that they're deploying? Yeah, no, I think it's a, a perfect question and segue. And frankly, I think some of what we've talked about a little bit, like I said, does play into the types of investors that are coming alongside. And I think policy has obviously been tremendously helpful, but I think that record levels of cash on corporate balance sheets, while also owning and maintaining phenomenal scale infrastructure to implement technologies that now not only work, but these corporates and these strategic investors can not only validate that technology, but also validate the need and the demand from their end user customers to implement these technologies has actually opened up the door for all of these other pools of capital that we'll talk about here to invest alongside of them in instances there. The strategic investment not only capitalizes the business further, but also de-risks sort of the path to market, the path to commercialization of those entities. It's only augmented by some of these financial investors' capital. So obviously, from a policy perspective, you've seen the Department of Energy and a number of the investment banks come alongside with not only DOE loans, green bonds, things like that. The SPAC phenomenon was obviously and will still be a great way for companies to get themselves well-capitalized um, whether through that vehicle or regular way IPO. Obviously, the area where I spend the majority of my time is private capital, but a lot of that is with investors with the ability to invest both publicly and privately. But uh, I think, you know, when you have these corporate balance, these corporate balance sheets really being put to work, the financial investors see validated technology right out of the clear market that can really fast track these technologies that the venture dollars have supported brought to market and, and validated. What does retail investors play in that? I mean, are we are we seeing a big demand from the, the markets in general public to invest in, in various forms of green funds or ESG funds that, again, is kind of providing this groundswell of capital to 
the energy transition or are we not is that not really a factor no well i think that's a great point i think esg is not a tagline anymore right it's not to check a box for the retail investor i think the true pure capitalist is now in a position to make a phenomenal return at the early inflection of some of these phenomenal technologies and companies now right so esg is a strategy and a portfolio allocation for outsized returns at this point right you have and i think that goes back to what i said about some of the validation and there really being a market and a demand from the consumer um, if you look in the market as a retail investor you can invest in tesla and you probably continue to make phenomenal return but as you're looking for the places and the bottlenecks in those industries uh, as whether you're a retail investor or an institutional portfolio manager <clears throat> when you look for the bottlenecks that enable the broader adoption and adoption at scale there's just such a tremendous opportunity now i think arash mentioned some of them whether it's the folks that are pulling the resources that have typically been scarce in more efficient ways or creating new technology that enables greater conductance of electricity through a vehicle as more content is added to that vehicle as you move towards autonomous or additional battery content it's all offering tremendous returns from customers who are now very well capitalized in the public market and are looking for ways to eliminate those bottlenecks and bring more of their product to market. And we continue to use the EV example, but I think it pervades every sector, right? We need ways to measure the carbon footprint. And there's a, a, a number of new software technologies out there. We have utilities who want greater visibility and certainty, the ability to, to deliver electricity to their customers a reasonable price and i think there's a tremendous amount of new technology being brought to market people are starting to be able to see in their backyards that are more tangible and frankly can deliver greater returns than perhaps you know the next solar or wind project but instead how can we make that next solar or wind project or existing well-capitalized solar and wind projects dovetail better into delivering the great results for the utilities and, and other. And look, I just, I, just to add something, Paul, to that, I think if I think about the five drivers, there's five drivers that come to my mind in terms of ESG investments that are pushing capital to that place. I think Blake hit that nail on the head and your question alluded to it, like client and investor demand as retail comes is a big driver, but returns are obviously a big driver, but managing investment risk is a big part of it, right? The firm's firm's like ability to manage their own reputational risk and boards, uh, investors sort of fiduciary duty, right? Because if you look at the last decade, the number of policies introduced to incentivize responsible investing is just been mind boggling. So in 2004, you had like under 50 policies introduced globally. Today, it's well above 600. And I think another thing I just alluded to on the retail investment perspective is if you look at the segment of 25 to 35 or 35 to 44, 75% of them will tell you, you know, according to the CFA Institute did something back, I think it was a year ago, that 75% of investors below the age of 44 will tell you that ESG plays into their strategy. And if you look at that number, you know, in 2018 versus 2020, that that number 
has held steady in the below 44 age, but between 45 and 54 has increased, right? So increasingly more demographics of people focused on investing at the retail level are saying that ESG strategies are a big part of their capital allocation decision. But it goes back, it's risk, reputational benefits to firms, financial returns, and fiduciary duties seem to be the five drivers that we're seeing in the market. So you mentioned earlier on that the initial movers and investors, these VC funds, a lot of them, to the ones at least I know, had quite robust scientific understanding, you know, staff, et cetera, that were able to understand and dig into these technologies. And when we talk about energy transition, there's, there's, there's those companies that are kind of obvious, right? But there's a panoply of different technologies out of there, different sources of fuel, many of which are unproven either economically or even technologically. What is, how has that changed the requirements you know, for you guys as service providers to these investors? How are organizations gaining the capability to understand what, what is quite a nascent industry with many, many different green shoots, some of which might not survive? The way I'm going to answer it is like as investment bankers and advisors to sponsors, growth equity, venture capital, venture companies, growth companies, and incumbents, it is tough, right? Like everyone's trying to figure it out live at the same time. There are also a lot of competing technologies, right? So if I think about it, like one perspective, right? You have a lot of thermal baseload that needs to be replaced with clean therm with clean baseload, right? And you have a handful of solutions that can do that, right? You have nuclear, you have geothermal, you have some combination of an intermittent power source and massive storage. And in that process, there are a number of different types of companies that play in that, right? So in nuclear, you have fusion and fission. In geothermal, you have a few different technologies that are looking to crack the code because geothermal is like geologically dependent. In solar plus storage, uh, as an example, like we just haven't seen storage, like storage is incredibly nascent, right? It's so early. So how do you sort of figure out who the winners are? I think that's frankly a tough question for anyone to answer. I mean, I don't think anyone, when you look back at history, and I always reference the tech boom, you know, I don't, if we all thought, if everyone knew Apple and Amazon were going to be the winners, we'd all be rich, right? I think there was a few people that invested in pet.com instead of like Apple, right? And so the, the fact is, is I think a lot of investors are taking, at least my perspective is, is are taking a portfolio approach in order to make sure that they get a good risk adjusted return. When you think about, but when you think about like, how do you evaluate a specific technology? I think the most important thing from my perspective is twofold. One is, does it have traction from a consumer and market perspective? So what I mean by that is like, does the product have a market fit? Does it have customers? Does it have revenue visibility? Does it have strategic commercial arrangement, joint development agreements? So that's sort of one side of it. Because that in itself would like tick the box with like actually becoming a, a real company. I think that the sort of, you know, the second bucket of that is like ultimately capital legitimizes businesses. And so, you know, the more capital you have, the more you can sort of take time to figure things out. So where does that capital come from is a question we I ask myself too, Paul. Is it is that smart capital? Is it strategic capital? Has you know the homework been done 
by the people that are providing the capital. So if I summarize, you know, in order to understand, like, first of all, it's going to be really tough to understand who's going to win. Two, we need a ton of different solutions to hit the market in order for us to make this transition because it's just much broader than turning our vehicles electric. It's a really big play we're, we're participating in. It's going to touch everything like digitization did. So, so when you think about evaluating a company, it's like strategic validation, revenue visibility, underlying equity, a really sort of simple, simple might be the wrong word, an efficient business model. And then what's the underlying capital it's got? So that, that's how, that's kind of my framework in evaluating whether a company has real power to make a difference or an impact. And Paul, I'm going to risk a little redundancy, but I'm going to say it from the non-specialist perspective. But, you know, I think climate change is a big, broad question. For some, it's still a debate, and I'm not going to get into the politics of that. But I think when you drive by or you fly over and you see windmills spinning in the middle of the ocean, you know, as the retail investor, the journalist investor, having the technical understanding of how that power makes it to your house may evolve different rates for different types of investors. But I do think that the broader investor, and this is where I think clean energy transition type solutions are starting to evolve more into you know, the ability to put your Peter Lynch hat on and invest in what you know and what you see and what can be a solution to clear problems out there. But you know, from the broad scale, grid scale utility for perspective, right? We see forest fires, we see blackouts, we see things that touch in personal investors and, and, and generalist investors, and you see an expensive utility bill hit your house, right? And then you start to think where, you know, how, how can this solar power and this wind power make it to my house cheaper? And we talked about sort of eliminating the green premium, but that's where you think about you know, new grid scale storage solutions and how those can reduce the variability and the volatility of the grid to enable that utility to bring things to me that I can feel and see in my bills every month um, and around me better, right? With EVs, there's a lot more Teslas on the road. There's uh, going to be a lot more electric vehicles from every auto manufacturer. You've seen, I think you've seen Ford and GM and some of the traditional OEMs all their stock prices rally meaningfully. And my opinion is that a lot of that is with the understanding of, you know, they're going to catch up and come with a with a phenomenal electric solution now and continue to in, increase the mix of their production from EVs. And so as those stocks rally and uh, there's conditional, continued alpha generated from those types of names, where do you continue to look upstream to generate those outsized returns? And now I'm speaking to the capitalists and not just, you know, the the, the green focus or ESG person, but it all dovetails in. I think your last podcast guest or one of your previous ones discussed sort of the power to charge two EVs in a parking lot being relatively equivalent to the power required to do the Walmart around it. Yeah. yeah. The Walmart there, right? It's a, that's a, that's a profound thing, right? And I think additional EV adoption will depend on making it significantly easier. Like everyone needs that 20 minute fast charge or that charge that is going to be about the same time that they spend at the pump. And I think, and then Arash talked about it as, it as these things start to flow through the capitalization life cycle from VC who validates the tech and then to corporate strategic buyers who validate the technology and fast track the commercialization of those things. 
than to the financial sophisticated portfolio manager or financial investor running these ESG funds who validates. And on top of that, that flows into balance sheets and income statements that people know and understand across all sectors. And it reduces the need for that deep technological understanding in order to be a participant in this market and to, you know, to participate in those returns from these great companies that are coming to market. Yeah. Okay. So shifting perspective to now, you know, the, the, the companies themselves or these startups that have a particular, whatever, you know, just an archetypal, you know, suite of technology or a mousetrap that's, uh, could be very important for the energy transition. And as you said, Arash, there's going to be need a whole slew of these. Have we seen, so have we seen any shift yet from the typical VC to acquisition by larger corporates? You know, are we seeing these startups immediately, you know, IPO earlier? What are we seeing about valuations? My question could be simplified by saying, you know, are we seeing what we saw in the, the digitization phenomenon? You know, Paul, great question. Uh, you know, what, you know, as we've seen, you know, over a hundred billion dollars come into this space, what are we going to see over the next 12 to 24 months? I think, you know, from my perspective, valuations have been pretty incredible, right? And if you think about the, the energy transition space, whether you look at the battery space, the hydrogen space, the ag tech space, cross energy transition and climate tech, you've seen absolutely robust valuations in both the private and public market. There's a bit of, you know, what I would call sector leading names, right? So if you're market, a perceived market leader from product development, strategic like validation, you're seeing a lot of robust values in around those names. So that's one element. So valuations are very high. I think they will continue to be robust as long as the company continues to progress their milestones. In terms of like the other point of your question, consolidation, absolutely. There is going to be a ton of consolidation in the space. And you're going to see it over time. I'm not sure it's going to happen over the next 12 to 24 months. But, you know, as you think about like, Good example is charging infrastructure, or let's just use charging infrastructure as an example. You know, there are about a dozen names that are public now. Do we need to have a dozen plus public names that play in charging? I'm not sure you do. Over time, you know, I think you'll probably see a lot of the names consolidated in that space. The same thing goes for like the solar space. You, you really don't need like, you know, a dozen. You know, I think you have a handful now, less than a handful of public names, but you have, you know, a dozen participants across the tracker, solar trackers, control boxes, et cetera. So, you know, consolidation will absolutely play within like even within its own sphere, within its own group of competitors or peers. But then your other question, how will the incumbents play in this space and will they consolidate? I think that is absolutely going to happen, Paul, right? So as you think about you know, some of the incumbents increasingly trying to establish a strategy, start to understand, you know, where their competencies fit, what their views on are, where the market's headed. You know, if you think about a traditional oil and gas company, you know, from my perspective, everybody has a, pl a place to play in this uh, sphere. And, you know, as a traditional oil and gas company, especially some of the larger ones, you know, they have really low cost of capital. More than that, they have a history of managing molecules. So that, that molecule is carbon or that molecule is crude oil. They have an opportunity to essentially manage, like become a carbon as a service company. It's just one example, right? So 
if you think about what the incumbents are going to do is like, you know, they're going to both focus on organically developing their business in that direction to meet elements of the climate energy transition. And they're, you know, I think more over time and more likely are going to be big consolidators in the space, right? As they find businesses that are, make sense from an evaluation perspective, see synergies in and give them real footholds and platforms in the space, you're going to see a lot more acquisitions and consolidations from incumbents. So I think from my perspective, there's going to be consolidation within the space, within end markets, like amongst each other. There's going to be continue to be robust valuations in the sector. And then, you know, incumbents are going to play both an organic and an inorganic role and probably look to consolidate businesses. They feel like they can get alpha from, they have synergies with and meet their, you know, their thematics. I mean, I know there are different views on timeline, but this isn't going to be happen overnight. You know, the energy transition is going to take a couple decades, if not a few. And so, look, we're early days. There's a lot more activity to happen. Blake, can you also, I'm just sort of wondering here whether looking at the debt market side of this, are we seeing actually kind of a capitalism really work in the sense that there's money flowing into green bonds, into wanting to um, support the energy transition, and therefore you are seeing organizations at whatever stage getting discounts or at least not paying premiums for being in hydrocarbon businesses that is really supporting this growth as well? Is that a, a virtuous cycle that we're seeing? You know, with any disruptive industry, you see a you're seeing a tremendous amount of influx of equity capital available to these companies. They're more capital intensive than perhaps software and other disruptive cycles that we've seen. But the the addressable markets are so large that the equity capital going into them is also large. And I think with the equity capital that sits in a lot of these companies, and especially as they tend to mature, gain more confidence in the the ability of the company to start moving towards cash flow or cash flowing off of those substantial asset bases, you're going to see them become increasingly more capital to uh, or attractive to the traditional debt investors who, frankly, when you look around at high yields and, and what they're yielding, obviously a little bit more than they were, but still well below uh, where they traditionally did. I think for those debt investors that have a ton of capital to put to work, investing alongside significant equity cushions. DOE loans and otherwise will generate attractive returns, the equity capital that can be used to finance the the initial asset base is going to look like great returns for traditional debt metrics as these asset bases mature and start to really cash flow. Like when you think about the debt market or the bond market, like there's only so much of the TAM they can look at, right? Like ultimately a bond is underwritten by current financial performance and very near expected financial performance. So I think what you're going to see in the bond market and the debt market, like whether it's venture debt, growth company debt, or project finance debt, they just don't have the same exposure to companies in terms of total quantum because, you know, they can only, they'll lend to EBITDA. Now, direct lenders will do all kinds of structures and transactions. But when you think about like bank debt in particular, or green bonds, institutional green bonds, they only have so many companies they can invest in. So what you're seeing a lot of is like, you know, sustainability linked bonds or sort of commit KPI bonds where they're making an incumbent who isn't necessarily an ESG name is making commitments, ESG commitments. And based on those, we'll get 
uh, KPI link bond or on the green bond market, you're just, you're seeing folks that are getting sustainability reports written or sort of qualify them for green bonds. But I think ultimately the main point is, is that the, the equity market currently just has a much bigger number of opportunities available to it because, you know, the, the bond market, like any other sector needs to have underlying you know, financial performance. And there's so much to come in these businesses that debt can't underwrite. Excellent. So you mentioned something there that, that is worth drawing out, I think, is that unlike previous digitization revolution, these are, as you said, Arash, very cap- typically capital-intensive tech startups, tech- capital-intensive businesses, and in some cases, extraordinarily so to build out the infrastructure for, say, hydrogen projects, etc., how does that change the nature of the opportunity? And indeed, what can organizations, these startups do to, I guess, best position themselves to attract investors? I think that's a great point, right? Which is this industry is naturally capital intensive and the capital intensity of the industry requires ever so much capital. So I think the way I think about it is, you know, it goes back to the product development roadmap. Given the capital intensity, let's say you're a company that's building waste to value. You have a a waste to value business model and you have this chemical mechanical processor that takes trash and turns it into whatever hydrogen or fuel. You could build a plant that returns 40%, you know, has a 40% IRR, you know, and pays back in two years, but requires a billion dollars, right? And, or you could build a plant that is like a tenth of the capacity, requires a hundred million dollars and has a much lower, has a much, much lower return on capital. So let's say 15 to 20%. And so if you're just thinking about it from your perspective, right? If someone came to you and said, give me 10 bucks and I'll return you a dollar or give me $10,000, I'll return you a thousand dollars. You're probably going to take up. Uh, based on that person's background, you're going to sort of risk adjust that, that return. And so my perspective is in order to see what investors want to see is technology risk be minimized and scale up risk be minimized before they deploy massive amounts of capital. And what they want you to do is prove that over, over time, right? So essentially, I think a lot of technologies you're going to see come you are going to take a path to market that allows for that pull, right? So instead of going and asking for big checks, you ask for smaller checks to prove out the technology. That's the way I think about it. And so with that being said, I think it just means it'll take a bit of time for some of the newer technologies, right, to come to bear. And you're seeing this in in private capital raises too, right? Like if you've only raised $15 million, trying to raise $500 million in your next round is is that much harder. I mean, people have exponentially grown the amount of capital they've asked for and have been successful, but a stepwise approach, I think is how you solve the capital intensity here. Yeah, interesting. So yeah, build smaller, prove the case, get some revenues in, you know, and then it will come. You know, as opposed to trying to go large at the start, which makes sense. What, yeah, when you look forward, right? This is obviously still all ultimately very early stage in the energy transition, however long that takes. It seems like things are lining up that investors, 
the broader community at large is starting to see the importance and even the inevitability of of this transition. And it, unlike previous revolutions in digitization, the dot com bubble, you know, it's, it, it has got some nuances. It's very different. It's you know, this is hardware. This is real technology driven, and it's going to take a lot of investment. Can you? I, I know I, I hate always asking for predictions, but can you give us some sense of where you think we'll be in a decade, and what are the primary levers that will change how fast the energy transition goes? Yeah, good question. I think the biggest primary, the the most important lever is probably a regulatory lever, and and what I mean by that is, you know, the. A really good example of that is like the DOE loan program office and, you know, the number of applications they've received. They recently announced a number of awards, you know, having regulatory support for the energy transition is very important, right? It creates, it essentially creates a market until a market exists. Does that make sense, Paul? So I, I think that's an important one. I think the, the, the other lever is a continued you know, from my perspective, low, low cost of capital, right? Like if you look at the broader cost of capital, we're, 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 I think the 10 year paper is like 1.7, something around there. It's below two. So just having access to low cost of capital, like broadly, also an important factor in the ability for capital to deploy into more risk, riskier businesses with technology and operational scale up risk. Um, because it, it allows for better returns in a low cost to capital environment, right? If you're competing with like, if you're competing with, you know, being able to invest in, in, in a growth business or venture business, I think that's, that's an important element. Those are sort of the two big levers. I, where are we going to be in 10 years? I mean, it's hard to say, you know, again, I look back at, I think you're going to have a number of technologies that are going to be important parts of this. I think storage is going to have to play a really important role because it brings resiliency to intermittent power sources that are renewable. I think, you know, if there's some breakthroughs in geothermal and nuclear, and we could actually see those get deployed at scale. And again, on the nuclear side, like regulations are incredibly important. So if we can see those breakthroughs, as well as the regulatory support, you're going to have massive massive um roles for for especially nuclear play but also geothermal i also think digitization is going to be very important i think blake touched on it earlier but the ability to actually manage electrons efficiently is going to have a big impact right and you know what's interesting with electron markets versus oil markets or gas markets you know the volatility is much more daily than it is like you know quarterly i think i read somewhere you know, the standard deviation of oil and gas is much higher on like a, a longer period, let's say a quarter versus the, the volatility you see in markets associated with power. So I think you're going to see a lot of, of uh, opportunity for those, those buckets, but that's, you know, that's not to say you're going to not have other technologies come because what, what I think I tell you is that the biggest thing I think that's going to surprise folks, Paul, if it already hasn't surprised folks, is the extra externalities associated with the supply chain are going to be severe, right? Like, especially at the pace we're transitioning. And I think that's something that always keeps me up is like, whether it's like shipping, whether it's like 
supply demand drivers of lithium or other other feedstock that i think is is ultimately going to be a a big lever as well but on sort of the negative side on the pace at which we can move forward if we don't find solutions for it so look i think again no crystal ball here but i don't think i'm the first person to use moore's law in the same conversation with clean energy transition i think the availability of capital will continue to accelerate that I think importantly, we talked about a couple of times the availability of cash on corporate balance sheets. And I think consumers have done a phenomenal job of continuing to demand the best from corporates that they purchase products from, whether it's someone you buy a sweatshirt from, uh, where you fill up your car or where you charge your car or which cryptocurrency you invest in, right? So I think it's availability of capital. It's demand from consumers that supports the continued availability of capital and investment dollars from the corporations where consumers can feel and touch these technologies. And I think measurement is going to be incredibly important too. Uh, is every time there's a new technology that supports an existing technology, it, there's a learning curve from consumers of where that technology's carbon footprint is. So that's going to continue to be incredibly important. I think capitalism will continue to prevail and you'll continue to see uh, great returns, altruistic investment, support continued investment. So I'm really excited about where the sector is going and um, what it's effectively doing for society. There might be a a slight nuance in this scenario where energy transition is a global requirement and also a strategic consideration as well. We've already seen Governments around the world provide significant support, you know, China to its to the, the battery supply chain, etc. Where does that fit in? I mean, as if this becomes increasingly stark as a as a as a challenge to the world, rapidity of energy transition only needs to get faster. Do you see you, you mentioned there, Rash, about government and policy being a real driver, a lever, a significant lever? Could you see that um, you know that could be disruptive to the normal flow of capital if you start seeing certain regions, certain governments sort of throw the rules of economics out the window because this thing has to get done? My biggest concern is, look, I'm an immigrant to the United States. I think this is, I've been very fortunate to be, you know, have such a great life and op- set of opportunities out here. And, you know, as, as you know, my, my children are American and my wife is American. And my biggest concern from a policy perspective is actually that we fall behind Paul. And the reason I say that is like, if you look at the industrial revolution and when like steam engines were created and people found out like petroleum works better than like steam powered engines, you know, Winston Churchill went all over the Middle East and gathered up oil resources, right? When you saw like the importance of oil and natural gas come with the growth of the Chinese economy, you saw all Chinese entities go all over the world buying up assets. And today, you are seeing exactly that. You are seeing Chinese-backed entities buying up lithium mine, cobalt mines, et cetera, doing all kinds of resource deals, right? So I think we're actually there, Paul, but from uh, especially on the mining and asset acquisition, like resource acquisition side. So I think the way I think about policy is like this really, you know, this goes beyond like, you know, decisive, divisive U.S., political landscape it's it's more like how do we figure out to be 
part of the energy transition without imploding our national security. And look, I'm no expert on this subject, but what, what I can tell you is we need to have an ability to manage or to a degree control the supply chain here because otherwise we're just going to shift our dependencies from some countries to others, right? And the national sort of like security drivers, I don't think are well understood, right? You know, I think there are a number of technologies, nuclear in particular, that we have significant advantage of. When you think about like EVs, recycling locally in the United States to reprocess like minerals reduces our dependency inter- internationally as well. So look, I, I, you know, this is a really important question. I, I don't know if I'm best suited to answer this, but what I would say is it's already started, Paul, yeah. right? Like I've seen it and we've seen it in other cases with China, you know, in oil and gas in the early 2000s. They're doing it now in the energy transition. And the United States needs to have a clear policy to to position itself as a winner, ultimately. It's also a level of education. You know, it comes kind of full circle back to the start of this conversation where we sort of divined the the split between the climate change risk and environmental degradation. And actually, if everyone is going to achieve energy transition and you're going to main, couple that with a level of security that governments want and societies want around those supply chains, Etc. We are going to have to start re-onshoring some of the the mining, some of the, the the heavier industries there, and I think that's where an education. It kind of comes back to this. There are some very obvious examples of green investing, and there are some others that, on the face of it, would not attract your retail investor looking for certain ESG goals, but in the end, might be far more crucial to us achieving energy transition than than you know just buying an EV manufacturer. Right. And, and look, the energy transition is really broad. Again, it's like it's software technologies that help you reduce emissions or manage emissions or use power more efficiently. It's solar power, it's wind power, it's nuclear power, it's food waste technologies because, you know, food is a big emitter of carbon, right? Like when you think about cattle, green hydrogen production, or I personally prefer low carbon intensity hydrogen production, right? Like whether green or blue, alternative fuels, low GHG proteins, that that mobility is just one element of it. To your point, Paul, there's a really broad sphere. And I think a lot more is going to come to the advent. I mean, look, I think a big part of why mobility is front and center is because some of the successes we've seen in a lot of the both the SPAC and public offerings we've seen in that space, right? So if you think about like mobility, transport, industry, manufacturing, sort of the industrial segment, it was one of the fastest um, going in terms of into the SPAC. And then you also obviously had Rivian IPO, you had the Tesla, like as a public company, but I think that saw like 60 billion of capital just in 2021. But if you take a step back, it's way broader than that. And I think nationals are actually focused on this and are coming up with strategies. And we just need a policy that puts us in a best position to win that might not be the most, what's the word I'm looking for, intuitive, right? But as a whole package, when we look at the supply chain and the carbon intensity of that product makes the most sense. Well, it's been a fascinating discussion. Before I let you go, it's obviously important to ask, and where does City fit into this this entire discussion? That's a great question. 
at City, we believe we have an opportunity, but also the responsibility to play a leading role in driving the transition to a net zero global economy. And as investment bankers within an organization such as City that's made that commitment to net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 and also playing a role in the global economy, what, what we do is fairly specific within the investment banking group. And so, Paul, you know, there are a couple of roles we play. With incumbents, we help provide mindshare, what's going on in the market, what are the observations, both from a capital market perspective, but also from a strategic perspective. What are the participants in the market doing? A level of pattern recognition in that market and provide our insights to clients. A second element we do Blake will comment on this more, but we raise both public and private capital for both public and private companies. So we help execute on capital raises, public and private, as well as debt and equity. And then a third thing we do is we advise companies on consolidation. So when companies are looking to acquire companies, merge with companies, uh, divest assets, we advise on those transactions. So look, simply said, we have a role to play. Um, we believe, you know, we have a responsibility as well as an opportunity to enable this transition. And we are advisors to both private and public companies, raising capital, advising on transactions, and being sounder boards of thought to leadership groups within those organizations. Our access to the best emerging companies across the board uh, gives us a somewhat omniscient view of where the clear bottlenecks are to us achieving that net neutrality globally out there and you know having an opportunity to have a front row seat to fill in the gaps financially and connecting those great companies with great technologies to the investors that can not only capitalize them but bring their ideas to market is just not only a privilege but a ton of fun to do. Well, I, I hope we can have you both back on in a couple of years and, and see how this, the picture is emerging because I think my general sense, and I think the uptake of this and other podcasts and other just sources of content is that there's a thirst and, and a hunger for knowledge and understanding about energy transition because it is such a broad field. There are so many different technologies. There's so many permutations. There's so many risks and vagaries associated with it that, you know, there is a real demand from individuals, organizations out there to have that, uh, that front row seat. So um, it's been a, a pleasure having you both on. Likewise, Paul. And look, a couple of years. I mean, if, frankly, we're living in dog years right now. If I'm correct, it's like <laughs> 50 human years is equivalent to like the first year of life for a dog. So it's just so rapid. The market's evolving so rapidly. So we're, we'd be having to be back in a couple of years, but I'm sure the market's just dramatically changed since then. Yeah. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks, Blake. Thanks, Arash. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offering as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.